0: If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Esther, uh, chapter 6. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Esther this morning. Esther, chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 14 of chapter 6 all the way through to the end of chapter 7. So Esther, chapter 6, beginning with verse 14, and I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Here, just by way of reminder... Esther, now at uh, the beginning of chapter 7, is about to give her request to the king. You remember that she uh, is the only hope to save her people, the Jews, against the the wicked plans of Haman. And so she's now ready to give her request at the second feast. So Esther chapter 6, verse 14, hear now the word of God. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast. That Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, Let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he now lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. And we think now especially of the book of Esther, Lord. We thank you for this book. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, that you'd help us to grasp and grapple with the, tra- the great truths that are contained within it, and we pray, Lord, also that uh, you would work those truths deep into our heart and that we would learn to trust you and to trust in your providence. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, sometimes when I am um, putting the, the church service together and, and you know selecting hymns and confession of faith and the call to worship and those sorts of things, uh, sometimes the confession of faith doesn't necessarily correspond very closely to the theme of the message. It's more just fitting in with the themes of the hymns or something. But today, uh, the confession of faith actually does fit very well with the sermon theme today or with the the theme of this particular chapter of Esther. I hope that you were not just you know, saying the words, but that you were actually thinking during the Confession of Faith about what it was that we were saying. Uh, we today recited from the uh, Shorter Catechism, and we were looking at questions 7, 8, and 11. And uh, those questions all relate really to the main theme of the book of Esther, as we've seen throughout these weeks. And as I've said many times, the theme of Esther is the providence and the sovereignty of God. If you're going to pick one major theme of this book, that's the theme. And although God is never explicitly mentioned in this book by name, nonetheless, he is silently working. He's what R.C. Sproul would call the invisible hand, the hand you can't see, and yet is sovereignly orchestrating everything, and so in question 11 of the Shorter Catechism, which, which we said as part of our confession of faith this morning, the question asks, what are God's works of providence? And it answers the question by saying that God's works of providence are his most wise and holy and powerful preserving and governing of all of his creatures and all of their actions. See, we we serve a God who's not the divine spectator. I think sometimes people popularly have this idea that the God of the Bible is this God who sort of sits in heaven and just kind of looks down at earth and is just sort of watching the events unfold. And he's just, oh, look at that, a hurricane is coming. Well, I hope it doesn't get too big. Otherwise, I might have to you know, get my feet up and do something. Or, man, I hope Levi makes the right decision today. I don't know exactly what he's going to do. You know, there's, there's sort of this popular idea that God actually doesn't orchestrate the events of history. And that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't just watch events unfold on the earth as if, he didn't have any control or as if he didn't care. No, the God of the Bible is intricately involved in everything that happens. And our catechism, summarizing the teaching of Scripture, says that God is provident. He is sovereign, not only over the natural events in the world, but he is sovereign over all of his creatures and all of their actions. That's a sovereign God. And yet the Westminster standards elsewhere also teaching what the scripture plainly teaches says that when God ordains everything that comes to pass, he does so in such a way so as not to destroy secondary causes. That is, he does it in such a way so as not to destroy the responsibility of man nor us as moral beings. And see, the scripture teaches that God is sovereign, and yet we as human beings are responsible, and we make real decisions. And we see this great truth illustrated for us here in Esther chapter 7. Actually, we see it everywhere in the book of Esther, but I want to bring it out here in chapter 7, because what we're going to see here is that God in his providence is always using his creatures, even sinful creatures, to bring about his purposes. Because if God wanted to, he could exercise supernatural power to destroy Haman. But he doesn't do that. God's normal way of operating is to use ordinary people to do his will. And so that's what we see here. And so we're going to see that great truth unfold, that God uses his creatures. He uses sinners in his providence, in three basic ways here. And it's just the unfolding of the story. We have Esther as she brings the request, and then we have the response to the request, and then the result of the request. So very simple outline here, the request, the response, and the result. I didn't try to make it alliterate like that. It just kind of worked its way in there. So that, that was nice. Anyway, let's look at the request. All right, Esther's request. So she now, here at the beginning of chapter seven, she's going to bring her request to the king. Now, just by way of reminder, right, Esther up to this point in our, in our account has not been honest with the king about who she is. Right? She has been all this time hiding her true identity as a young Jewish girl. She's been pretending to be part of the Persian society. Uh, Mordecai told her to do this, and she's been doing it. And we've noted earlier in the series that Esther is not exactly the greatest role model at the beginning of the story. Right? Because Esther is about as opposite of a good, pious Jewish girl as you can really be. Right? God specifically outlined the laws of the, that the Jews were supposed to follow in the Old Testament, and the Pentateuch. And those laws were specifically designed so that God's people could not pretend to be like the nations around them they couldn't eat with the pagan nations they couldn't worship with the pagan nations they had very specific dietary food laws they had the kosher laws they had the sacrifices that they had to do they had the the ritual cleanliness they had to practice and Esther now for five years it's now been five years that she's been queen of Persia and for five years she's clearly not been doing any of these things She's not been living according to the laws of the food laws that God gave. She's not been practicing ritual cleanliness. She's not been worshiping Yahweh publicly. She's not been praying to Yahweh publicly. You go down the list. She's not your ideal pious Jew. She's a sinner. She's a sinner. She's in rebellion to the law of God. Now for five years at least. And who knows if she was even following it before then. She prays in the, the apocryphal prayer that I talked about last time we were together that she apologizes to God and begs his forgiveness because she and the rest of the Jews have been worshiping Persian gods. So Esther is not exactly the the greatest character at the beginning of the story. But now, here in chapter seven, as she brings her request to the king, she's now changing. She's undergoing this kind of character change. And now she's going to admit finally to her husband, of all people, who she actually is. This is a big coming out of the closet event for Esther. She is going to say who she is to him once and for all. And she's doing it at the risk of her own life. This is a big moment for Esther. Now, she, as she brings her request to the king, as we take a look here, look at verse three. I want to read this for you, and I want you to note how tactful Esther is as she presents her request to the king. Listen to this, verse three. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now notice how she puts this together. The first thing she does as she pleads with the king is she instantly startles him. I mean, you can imagine what the king's thinking here as he's waiting for her request. Like, uh, uh, Esther, what do you want? You know, I mean, what, you want a new dress? Uh, You want me to build you a palace in the suburbs? I mean, what is it that you want? You know, you're trying to butter me up here. You're getting me ready. All right, I'll give you what you want. Whatever you want. He's now said three times before Esther's even given the request that he will grant it. See, Esther's been smart that way. She got him to commit three times to fulfilling it before she even gave the request. Wives, remember that. That's actually a great idea. You should file that one away for yourselves. But notice here what's happening. She immediately, when she gives her request, she says, give me my life. That's her request. Give me my life. That would startle the king. He's like, whoa, what are you talking about? Your life? Or Are you in danger? She says that she and her people have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And notice there she's using passive verbs. And passive verbs are very, a very clever use of rhetoric because what passive verbs allow you to do is to hide the person who's doing the action. Because you think about it. Esther has been, Esther and her people have been sold to be killed on a specific day of the month. That's the edict that's going to wipe out all the Jews. And her being a Jew, she's included in that. Now, who is the one who is actually doing the selling? Who has sold her to be destroyed? Well, I guess on on the one hand, you could say Haman is the one who did that. Because he's the one who's been you know, connivingly orchestrating this whole edict and the destruction of the Jews. But it's not really strictly speaking Haman who's done it because who was the one who gave Haman the ring to seal the law into effect? By whose power are the Jews getting killed? It's not Haman's power. It's more just his orchestration and his conniving. No, the power that is killing all the Jews right now is the power of the king himself. And notice Esther's tact here. She doesn't just come out and say, King, you're going to kill me. She does say that, but she does it without actually accusing the king of anything. She uses a passive verb. You see that? She's being very careful here. And finally, notice what else she says here. Second half of verse 4. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. What she's saying here is she's appealing to the goodness of the king's empire and she's saying listen king if you deemed that it was necessary to sell the jewish people into slavery because it would better the empire it would be a, of some kind of benefit to you and your your kingdom all right i wouldn't complain i'd be silent but here's the thing king if you sell or if you sell all of us to be destroyed if you wipe out this massive chunk of the population of your empire this is going to be bad for you This is not going to be good for your empire. This is going to be terrible for your economy. It's going to be terrible for your reputation. Don't do this. So see what else she's doing there. She's appealing to the king as the king and saying, this is bad for the empire. If it were good for the empire, I would submit to you. But I'm going to tell you, don't do it because this is bad. This is bad for you. Now, I just find Esther's request here to be so incredibly subtle and yet so incredibly powerful. Because she is saying all the right things to get the king on her side. She's prepared him with the multiple feasts and now she's presenting the request very carefully thought out and in exactly the right words to please this king. Which, by the way, ancient historians tell us that this king was incredibly selfish and obsessed with his reputation. So this fits. And I think that what this illustrates for us just as we're thinking about the main theme of this text, that God uses uh, his creatures to accomplish his purposes. You know, Esther, she was told by Mordecai earlier on in this passage, or not in this passage, but earlier on in the book, that she was prepared and she was placed as queen by God for such a time as this. Right, you remember that? Esther was placed there for such a time as this. God, in his sovereignty, orchestrated that she would be there to be the mediator to save God's people. So you know what Esther could have done? She could have said, Oh, all right, great, God's sovereign. All right, I'm just going to come right to the king and say exactly what I want. I don't need to try. I don't need to prepare anything. I don't need to be prudent. I don't need to be wise. I don't need to be tactful. I'll just show up and say what I want because God's going to work through me. And She doesn't do that. Some people have this uh, approach or sometimes accusation against the doctrine of predestination. We teach that the idea that God has chosen whom he will save before the foundation of the world according to his eternal counsel, which we do believe, which is what the scripture teaches. Some people immediately think, oh, well, then we don't need evangelism. We don't need the gospel. We don't need preaching. We don't need to be prepared. No. Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. God uses his creatures, but we are responsible as the means that God uses to prepare ourselves to be tactful, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And that principle is what Esther's engaging in right here. She knows that she has been ordained by God to be in this position. But what she's doing is she is preparing to give that answer which is within her. She knows that she's been called by God to do something and she's preparing for it. And that's what she does. And she comes and she executes brilliantly. And so that's the request that we see here. Now, notice the response that is given. We have the response of the king and the response of Haman here in verse five. Then the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe. And an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And so the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. So notice here a couple of different responses here. The king, on the one hand, outraged, says, Esther, who is going to kill you and your people? She says, it is Haman, the enemy of the Jews two things happen. One, the king is furious and he wants to destroy Haman. And then the second thing that happens is Haman is terrified for his life. Haman is terrified for his life. And notice this strange and yet satisfying irony in the text. That on the one hand, Haman, his whole task throughout this book has been to destroy the Jewish people. And yet now with this Ironic twist, Haman is now begging for his life from a young Jewish girl. The author of Esther wants us to sort of smile a little bit here at the irony of that. This is what happens to God's enemies when they seek to destroy his people. Suddenly they find themselves on the receiving end of God's destruction that he brings about. So Haman is terrified here. And then thirdly, we've got the result. And I want to focus on this section a little bit more. The result, this is verses eight through 10. Notice that the king in his wrath uh, from the wine drinking, he went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch, where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Now, just thinking through this event in real life, not thinking about it as sort of this abstract story, but if you place these events in real life, it seems a little bit strange to think that the king would, would leave for, for a little bit and come back in, and he would actually think that Haman was trying to rape the queen. I don't think the king was, actually thought that. In fact, commentators actually point out that there's something else going on here. The king left the room after he found out what Esther said because the king had a problem. He was now in a dilemma. On the one hand, he recognized that Haman was orchestrating a plan to kill off the queen and all of her people. And yet on the other hand, the king recognized Esther's point, that he, the king himself, had signed the law into effect. And so he couldn't really just come out and say, okay, Haman, we're going to execute you. Because the king himself had signed the law into effect. You see that? It was the king's power that initiated the law. He couldn't punish Haman for something that he himself had endorsed. And so what happens here is the king steps out. He wants to think about the event, think about what he can possibly do. Finally, he comes back in, and now he has found something that he can pin against Haman. Now he's found something. Ah, he tried to rape my wife. Now I've got something against him. Now I can execute him. This is not outside of the bounds of what this king was capable of. In fact, if you read the ancient historians, they will say that this king was very good at creating conspiracy theories. He was very good at lying to protect his reputation and to get things done. He was not refraining from turning against his second-in-command. In fact, this is actually stuff that happens a lot even in today's politics. Right? People, if you want to discredit someone, all you got to do is accuse them of some kind of sexual misconduct and boom, you know, you ruin their reputation. That's the kind of thing that's been happening, not just today, but it happens throughout history, including in this text, commentators uh, uh, think. So that's what the king's doing here. He's finally found something to pin against Haman. And if if that's not enough, then the younger brother in the backseat of the car in verse 9 says this. Uh, He says, moreover, hey, you know what else big brother's done that's bad? He said that he built a gallows to destroy Mordecai, to hang him on. So now the king's got two reasons to execute Haman. Raping the queen, supposedly. And secondly, to uh, hang Mordecai, who saved the king. And so Haman gets executed. And notice Just before he gets executed, what he was doing, we're told in the text that as the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And notice that word falling. Does that sound familiar at all? It should. Because back at the end of chapter 6, and the last time we were together looking at this passage, we were told that Haman's wife, Zeresh, had prophesied that he would fall before the Jews. And she wasn't just meaning that figuratively, that he would be defeated by them. But the text in ironic and subtle fashion says that here Haman was falling before Esther as he begged for his life. It's another ironic twist. So Haman falls and he's executed and the wrath of the king is abated. Now, We sort of take a step back here and and think about this account. Just note one thing, and that is the Jews are not out of the woods yet. There's more to this story in chapters 8, 9, and 10. They're not saved yet. But nonetheless, the enemy of the Jews has been defeated. Haman has been defeated. And so as we sort of take a step back and look at this passage and see, you know, what does all this mean for us? The main theme, as I've mentioned, of the book of Esther is the sovereignty and the providence of God and the invisible hand that is at work. And as God works out his providence in this book, what we have seen is not Elijah showing up with great supernatural miracles of fire coming down from heaven and consuming altars. We've not seen Elisha show up and part waters. We haven't seen God using supernatural means. Rather, here, when we see how God works out his plan in Esther, he's using ordinary, regular people. Ordinary, regular sinners. On the one hand, he's using Haman. Haman is the bad guy of the plot, obviously. But Haman has been his own enemy in a lot of ways. It's his pride that got the better of him. It's his ambition that got the better of him. It's his desire to crush the seed of the woman that has crushed him. God could have struck Haman dead if he wanted to, but he didn't. He used Haman himself to bring about his purposes. And further, God used Esther to bring about these purposes, an ordinary young jewish girl who's been a terrible role model for other jewish girls so far in this book and yet god used her you see this illustrates for us that god in his providence in his ordinary providence uses ordinary means to bring about his purposes god certainly can use extraordinary means namely miracles and great signs and wonders if he wants to But that's not how he ordinarily works. He ordinarily works by using ordinary means. You know what that means? That means that when God wants to work, he uses you. When God wants to work, he uses me and he uses you. See, God's sovereign. We know that. Always working all things according to the counsel of his own will. And as he does that, he uses you. When he wants to bring the gospel to someone, he wants to use you. And he has ordained you to be in the positions that you are to be used by him. I doubt that the Jews of Esther's day thought that the best way that they could have been saved was by a young Jewish girl. No, they would have wanted something much more extraordinary, something much more big, something much more amazing, something more exciting. It's not very exciting to think that this young girl would save them. And yet that's how God did it. And yet it's also probably not far-fetched to imagine that while the Jews didn't expect Esther to save them, as they probably didn't, we know that the Jews certainly didn't expect their Messiah to be a young carpenter from Nazareth. No, the Jesus' disciples and his followers, they wanted a conquering king who would come in and wipe out the Romans and establish the kingdom of God on earth right then and there. And their desire was good because Jesus is a conquering king in his second coming. The problem is in his first coming, it was something much less extraordinary. Jesus in his first coming was a servant. A lamb led to the slaughter. Sometimes we wish that God would act supernaturally and do some kind of amazing thing to just astound everyone. And he does do that. But folks, take heart that God's normal way of operating is to use normal, everyday people like you and like me to bring about his purposes. When he wants to bring his word to the church, he doesn't throughout all the ages declare it from the mountain of Sinai. Rather, he uses the foolishness of preaching. He uses the foolishness of preaching to bring the good news. God works through ordinary means. And so in this way, be like Esther. Recognize the providence and the sovereignty of God at work. And yet be prepared to be used by God To bring about his purposes. Prepare to give an answer for the hope that is within you. God is sovereign. He will do what he wants to do. But he has also ordained the means. And we oftentimes are the means he uses to bring people to salvation. To educate our children. And to do his will on this earth. God is sovereign. And he uses us. And that is a great privilege. Let's pray. Oh God, we rejoice this morning that you are all-powerful and you indeed have all of the power within yourself to do all the miracles and the extraordinary things that we could ever dream of. And Lord, in history, at certain times, you have done those things. You've parted the Red Sea. You've thundered from Sinai. You've had fire rain down from heaven. You've raised the dead. Lord, we thank you for these great signs and powers. But Lord, we recognize that throughout Scripture, when you want to bring about your purposes, those are not your normal, ordinary means of operating. But your normal way of working out your providence is through ordinary means, like us. And oh Lord, we pray that as we examine ourselves, Lord, that you would prepare us to to do your will. Lord, we don't know what exactly you you are going to do through us, but Lord, we pray that we would be prudent and tactful and we would be prepared to do what you have called us to do. And Lord, we know regardless of all of the Particularities of our lives, we know one thing that you have called each and every one of us to do, and that is to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. You prepared us, and you've told us to be prepared to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to proclaim that forgiveness of sins offered to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would prepare us now for that. We pray, Lord, also that you would give us confidence and you would give us assurance, and that it is a wonderful and great privilege to be used by you, and it is amazing that you would even want to use us. And oh God, pray that you would work that deeply into us and that we would learn to love and to trust you more and to do your will, all as we trust in the salvation of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of that Savior, Christ. Amen. Our hymn of response uh, this morning is number 75. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. Number 75. Please stand as we sing together.